My guest tonight on Extension 720 is an old friend who happens to ply the same trade that I do. That is, he is a talk show host, a well-known talk show host, but he's much more than that. He's a close observer of American history, American civilization, and contemporary American politics. One might also speak of contemporary American social pathology, at least pathology on the parts on the part of those who observe America and comment on it all too often in negative accents. That guest is Michael Medved. The new book by Michael Medved is The Ten Big Lies About America. Um, how's that for an introduction? It's terrific, and I'm, I'm very grateful. The, the only bad part about the introduction was the weather report for Chicago. Yes, and it's going to get worse. And I'm here in the studio, whereas you're safe in the balmy breezes of Seattle, Washington at the moment. Right, where we've overcome our, our winter storm. But I'm, I'm <laughs> a chill. That's the only way to describe it, because I'm, I'm coming to Chicago for uh, the weekend. I'm arriving on Friday, and I just heard things like uh, a, a low of, did they say 10 below zero? I think I, I turn my consciousness off when they talk about the weather during these months. Um, we'll talk more about your impending visit to Chicago, if it comes about. There may be some problem with regard to the air transport. But right now, let me get your reaction to something else. Here is a famous visitor to America. I will not yet tell you who. And here are two things he said. One, America is the most grandiose experiment the world has seen, but I am afraid it is not going to be a success. And a few years later, he said, America is a mistake, a giant mistake. I could play the quiz game and ask you to come up with uh, the origin of that, but these are fairly obscure quotations from the man. But do you have any sense who it might be? It's um, probably either Tocqueville or Dickens. No, but uh, it's another distinguished visitor who came only once to this country, visited uh, Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he and his colleagues gave a number of lectures. It is none other than Sigmund Freud. Oh, yes. Okay. Th th that, uh, that makes all the sense in the world, of course. Does it? What sense does it make? Well, uh, Sigmund, Sigmund Freud was a, uh, a close observer of uh, human nature, but not mm -hmm. a particularly astute observer of... Uh, of human affairs. I mean, after all, he he only got out of uh, of Austria uh, just right before the Anschluss. Uh, barely made it to London, and uh, I believe didn't uh, didn't Freud die the same day or almost the same day, September first, nineteen thirty nine, mm -hmm. that the Second World War broke out. He did indeed. But here's another visitor to this country, uh, equally well known for different reasons. You have to be sure that the Americans will commit all the stupidities they can think of, plus some that are beyond imagination. That, I will tell you, is none other than Le Grand Charles, Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> in uh, speaking to Time, or quoted in Time magazine, back in 1967. Uh, the reason I come up with this is that you're talking about uh, bad lies that we lots of people believe in this country about this country. The fact is, negativism towards America has been common trade on the part of European observers, perhaps from the beginning. It, it has indeed. As a matter of fact, I, I uh, the last chapter of my my book is called Abnormal Nation, and the French have always been particularly divided about America, either totally in love with the American experiment and what it meant, or, or utterly horrified by it. But uh, you, you have people, uh, even after France helped us win our independence and the war for independence, uh, French observers who uh, 
considered America unspeakably vulgar, uh, crude, destructive, a, a bad influence on the whole world. And, of course, French aristocrats had great reason to fear that because it was largely the influence of the American Revolution and the desire for liberty that uh, helped to inspire so many of the original French revolutionaries. I'm armed with quotations. I've got a last one for you, and then we will launch into talking about what's in this fine new book of yours. But this is from an American who says, America, just a nation of 200 million used car salesmen with all the money we need to buy guns and no qualms about killing anybody else in the world who tries to make us uncomfortable. And I'll tell you who the source of that one. Uh, you will see that the name fits the quotation, I suppose. It's none other than Hunter S. Thompson, otherwise known as Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Yes, and he eventually acquired one of those guns and, uh, and used blew his it brains for out. Yes, a, a nefarious purpose, which was to, to blow out what had remained of his brain. But I would say what he represents, because that's a more recent quotation, is that lots of Americans have bought the condescension and condemnation that we have for two centuries or more been receiving from our European cousins. I know that's exactly right, um, Milton. I, and, I, and I think that that condescension is based on a very simple fact. There's a historian whose work I'm sure you know named Walter McDougall at University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And he asks, I think, a tremendously important and relevant question, which is, what is the biggest historical event of the last 500 years? And without any question, the biggest event in history in the last 500 years is the rise of the United States of America. It changed everything. Because 500 years ago, if you talk about the year 1500, uh, Spain and France were around, and, and Britain was a rising power, and the Chinese Empire was important, and Indian civilization was important. The, the one big change in the world was the rise of the United States with the ideas associated with it. And, and that has altered everything in the world. And, and one of the things that it did, and it's, it's something that I cite in the book, is the, the amazing thing is we went from 1750, where every corner of the planet had the institution of slavery, to 1900, just 150 years later, where slavery was gone everywhere except for some corners of the Islamic world. And what changed? And the magisterial historian of slavery, uh, David Brian Davis of Yale, says that what changed was the example of the American Revolution, which altered the entire world attitude toward what a human being meant and to human rights. Ah, but, and I will give you a number of buts tonight, only doing my job as a uh uh, advocatus diaboli, um, and I will remind you of what you uh, list as big lie number two. I read uh, the title of that chapter. The United States is uniquely guilty for the crime of slavery and based its wealth on stolen African labor. Yes, and, and, and the point about that is that you say are, that's are a big we lie. guilty for slavery? Of course we're guilty for slavery. Are we uniquely guilty? No. And the uh -huh. reason we're not is because we played no role in establishing the institution, none. The institution was well established before anyone had even settled in the United States of America. And, uh, and we played, while no role in establishing the institution, we played the lead role in abolishing it because of the impact of our revolution. Well, now, didn't the English abolish it before we did? Yes, they did. But uh, actually only a generation before. And the truth of the matter is that the sacrifices that the United States made in abolishing slavery were huge. And, and again, it was the American example, and William Wilberforce himself mm -hmm. acknowledged the inspiration of the American Revolution in leading the British abolition. That's Bishop Wilberforce, uh, an Englishman, 
who was one of the main anti-slavery advocates uh, in the years before our Civil War. Yes, who crusaded uh, for the halt of the slave trade. And, and, and by the way, a lot of people uh, do forget this, that in the Constitution, and it was a terrible, terrible disappointment to people like Hamilton and to John Adams who were, and Benjamin Franklin, who were all committed to the anti-slavery cause. But the Constitution, even though it accommodated slavery shamefully, uh, did provide for the abolition of the importation of slaves because the Founding Fathers recognized that by abolishing the importation of slaves in 1808, which is provided for in the Constitution, their hope was that the institution would wither and die. Though we do, our Founding Fathers, certainly the Southern Founding Fathers, do have uh, lingering around them the taint of slavery, as we know. Just last week I had on the program a fine young author, she's a lawyer in New York, who uh, did the book on uh, Sally Hemings and, and Thomas Jefferson. Annette Gordon-Reed is her name. And she's done a more recent book about the Hemings, or the Hemingses, as she titles it, uh, of Monticello. Yes, I think she just won the National Book Award for And that. she won the National Book Award for it. It's fascinating material. And, if, if, and as you look more closely at Thomas Jefferson's relation to slavery, it becomes really re- truly bizarre, unless the culture that he came from, the Virginia planter culture, uh, is a way of accounting for it. Because many of his slaves were, of course, also uh, his relatives. That is to say, they were relatives, at least, of his wife. His wife and Sally Hemings were half-sisters. Yes, and, and uh, the, the, the goings-on at Monticello are, are, are truly bizarre. You're right, there, there's only one word for it. And you, you see, the, the, the point about Jefferson is that, again, if you, if you go back and you look at the world in 1750, uh, and Jefferson was born, uh, what, in 1743, I believe, If you look at the world in 1750, basically no one believed that slavery was evil. And within 50 years, many people believed slavery was evil, including Thomas Jefferson, who practiced it. He practiced it because he was broke, and he had no way of... uh, And he practiced it because he was a shameful hypocrite in that regard. There's no no, uh, denying that. He also wrote a treatise about the inferiority of blacks. Yes, well, it notes on the state of Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, which includes sections. I mean, that's not the main focus. But it, it was clearly his conviction, or maybe it was his rationalization. It, it, I, I think his rationalization and conviction. What's fascinating to me, and this is something I didn't know until I wrote this book, Milton, is that people like Jefferson, who believed that black people were by nature inferior and were horrified at the idea of miscegenation, of, quote, uh, of, of intermarriage or intermixing between blacks and whites, were strong advocates of intermixing of whites and Indians. And Jefferson believed that that would strengthen the United States of America and that it should be actively promoted by the federal government. Now, uh, we're about to go to some commercials. You know about commercials on talk shows, haven't we? <laughs> Something, yes. Um, but um, let me ask you quickly, well, I guess I'll ask you to do this right after we return from the commercial, since I am three minutes late at the moment. We should run down the full list of the ten lies about America, and then settle on some of them for further elaboration. So get ready to read uh, that, uh, really, the list of the, the chapters in your book, and uh, then we shall continue. In conversation with Michael Medved, indeed the author of the new book, The Ten Big Lies About America. And we return directly to Michael Medved, who's talking to us from Seattle, where he is based. 
uh, and is, of course, the author of the recently published book, The Ten Big Lies About America, Combating Destructive Distortions About Our Nation. That book, by the way, published by Crown Forum. Michael, uh, you remember, since after all you are also a reigning movie critic, you remember the film with Dustin Hoffman some years ago, titled, Who is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying all those terrible things about me. Yes, it was directed by Ulu Grossbart. I actually liked that film a lot. So did I, as I remember it. Well, I'm wondering, uh, uh, let's first review all those terrible things they're saying about America, and then the question is, who is really saying them? Run down the list. Well, the, the first big lie that, that we talk about, and these are, these are lies that many Americans have come to believe, even though they generally originated abroad. The first big lie is that America was founded on genocide against Native Americans. Now, before you dis disprove that lie, run down the list of the ten. Yes. Just read, uh, the, read second, those titles. Big, big lie number two, we've already mentioned the United States is uniquely guilty for the crime of slavery and based its wealth on stolen African labor. A lie number three, which comes up every year during holiday season, the founders intended a secular, not Christian nation. Big lie number four, America has always been a multicultural society strengthened by diversity. Lie number five, the power of big business hurts the country and oppresses its people. A lie number six, governmental programs offer the only remedy for economic downturns and poverty. I wish that uh, I could uh, get President-elect Obama to take a look at uh, that big lie and its exposure in my book. A big lie number seven, America is an imperialist nation and a constant threat to world peace. Lie number eight, the two-party system is broken, and we urgently need a viable third party. Lie number nine, a war on the middle class means less comfort and opportunity for average Americans. And lie number ten, uh, perhaps the most controversial of all, America is in the midst of an irreversible moral decline. That's the one lie, as you brand it, uh, where I might disagree with you just a bit. I'm confused on it. But I think it may not be irreversible, but there has been a moral decline in American public life uh, and even in American familial life. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, back to the Harry Kellerman title. Who's telling all these lies about us? Well, first of all, people, people hear it in academia a great deal. Uh, people hear it in elementary school. I, I mean, I begin the book with the story of the Seattle City Schools. Uh, and I'm proud to live in the Northwest, but I'm not proud of what some of our governmental entities sometimes do, is that in Thanksgiving of 2007, they sent out a letter to all the faculty and staff of uh, the various city schools warning people that for many Seattleites, Thanksgiving was a day of mourning, that it was a day of sadness, that people didn't have anything to be thankful for because... Uh, America was so guilty of this horrible crime of genocide. And what they had in mind was the Native American population, uh, which is fairly sizable in and around Seattle. Yes. Uh, well, th th when you say fairly sizable, it's about a half of one percent. Only a half of one percent. Yeah. So we've, I, more sizable, more... perhaps, than around in and around Chicago. No, as a matter of fact, we've got probably a larger Indian, I dare say the word Indian, uh, population in Chicago. Well, we, I, uh, you do in Chicago. Well, we have lots of casinos. That's the uh, right. Uh, but uh, having having said that, the the idea that that we should teach our children that Thanksgiving should be a season for guilt rather than gratitude is one of the things that inspired me to write this book. Uh, and and you say who who is repeating these lies? Of course, it is said regularly by people who run down the United States of America. Uh, one of the people that I quote is the great French novelist Stendhal, 
who uh, believed that America was singularly vulgar and egotistic and, and awful, uh, with that sort of uh, long-nosed French contempt, which has helped to inspire uh, literally thousands and thousands of intellectuals here in the United States to look down their own long noses at the country that has nourished them and sustained them. Would you would you agree that and do you in fact contend that we are as Americans now more anti-American, more troubled about and more negative towards our own history and aspects of our own present national life than we were, say, when you and I were young and going to college? Without question, and this is this has been a a for people who are declinists who who point to the decline in various aspects of American life the decline of a pride of informed patriotism the kind of informed patriotism that i quote ronald reagan talking about that decline is very real and very alarming and uh... again part of what disturbs me is sort of the the reflexive instinctive way that so many people simply buy in to these smears against their country well then the basic question that necessarily forces itself upon us right now and it's of course something you address in the book is uh, why have these smears been uh, so much more fully propagated? Why have they been so persuasive to so many Americans? Well, I think a, a large part of this uh, relates to where, where many of the malfunctions and deformations of our national life originated. The era of the 1960s mm -hmm. is that um, we were engaged in a monumental struggle against the most evil system of government and economic organization in history, uh, international communism. And uh, it was a struggle I know you have spoken about and you're very aware of. And our enemies uh, very deliberately planted disinformation everywhere that ran down the United States as a, uh, uh, as a source of poison and cultural pollution and moral pollution and imperialist power. It's truly extraordinary. The, the, the late um, Nobel Prize winner, Harold Pinter, is a uh, oh, Nobel yes. Prize for Literature, playwright of, of plays that I must confess I never particularly admired. But Pinter, who just died, um, in his Nobel Prize speech, it was a long jeremiad and a tirade about how guilty and evil and dangerous the United States of America was. And you see, the, the, the annoying thing about this is you can understand why somebody who lives across the ocean and has never had a direct involvement with American life, could believe the worst about our country. But how people who actually live here, who see the prodigious goodness and opportunity and kindness and warm-heartedness and jeopardy of this great country. I mean, if you look th this weekend, all around the world, in Barcelona and in Milan and in London and in Edinburgh and in Paris and in Brussels, there were, there were horrible riots with police officers injured, riots concerning... Uh, what's going on right now in the Middle East. In the United States, we had demonstrations on both sides, a very hefty demonstrations, and some cruel things were said. But it's very, very telling that in this country we hold elections, we have demonstrations, and by and large we're able to avoid violence. Michael, and we're going to um, a newscast in just a moment, but I can't resist telling you um, and wondering about Harold Pinter, who was, of course, uh, violently and viciously anti-American, not only in his Nobel speech, but for years preceding. Uh, and one sometimes one wonders 
what the dinner table conversation was like between Harold Pinter and his wife, Lady Antonia Fraser, uh, on the many occasions when she came over to this country to push her books and then came back uh, to London uh, to uh, her husband's apartment. Uh, Lady Antonia, whom I interviewed a few times, uh, I remember being uh, very charming, very cordial, and had very uh, pleasant things to say about Americans, including a great deal to say about how she loved the city of Chicago. Hmm. Well, I, I, again, I, I, the only thing I can guess is that the pinter table, they had long, <laughs> pregnant pauses. I, perhaps so. Michael, let me zero in on one of the lives. Uh, I'm afraid we probably can't get around to all ten of them, but some of them certainly, they all deserve further commentary. But one that interests me a great deal is big line number three. The founders intended a secular, not Christian, nation. One uh, We mentioned, uh, I mentioned Thomas Jefferson earlier. As you well know, one of the most common uh, references made when people make that argument is, well, Jefferson sat in the White House on cold nights uh, pursuing his hobby, which was to rework the Bible, taking all references to God and all references to Jesus as a transcendent uh, figure uh, uh, sent by God or a part of the Godhead, to take all of that out and produce a totally secular version of the New Testament, out of the Old as well. Therefore, he was uh, an anti-religious, or at least an irreligious person. Well, he, he wasn't. I mean, someone, I think you could argue that someone who was obsessed, first of all, he did not strip the Jefferson Bible, is not stripped of all references to God. It's all stripped of all references to the divinity of Jesus. And uh, yes, that was very controversial at the time. Jefferson also attended Christian services every Sunday that were held during his presidency in the Capitol building of the United States, the kind, the kind of services that would be stricken immediately by the Supreme Court today. And, and the question would be, how could Jefferson, who was not a conventional Christian, uh, take himself to these federally sponsored Christian services on federal property? And he made it very clear because he believed that religion uh, served an important purpose in, in the United States, whatever his problems embracing conventional religion. And for the same reason, Jefferson was a strong supporter of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which used federal money and federal authority, this was the same year the Constitution was adopted, to, uh, to promulgate, to teach the gospel to the Indians. Uh, so Adams himself uh, supported use of tax money to construct churches and to hold services. So the, the, the idea that there was some ob obsession with uh, secularizing or, or cleansing America of religious taint on the part of the Founding Fathers is simply not true. One of the fascinating things, in my book, I, uh, I reprint in its entirety a resolution that was passed by the Congress the same day that they adopted, the same day they adopted the First Amendment. And it was a resolution declaring a national day of prayer and thanksgiving sure. uh, to Almighty God for sustaining the United States of America. Of course, there's a real and hidden functionality in that argument, or that lie about our founders. And it is uh, that uh, that would then support the continuing present complaint that comes from certain sources on the left, that America is in danger of being taken over by a vast right-wing evangelical conspiracy which will destroy our nation. Right, that, that, that theocracy is going to be imposed here, that there is a Taliban yeah. wing yeah. of the Republican Party. Now, all of this is absurd because there is, is absolutely nothing that 
even the most uh, fervent advocates of the religious right point of view want to achieve in America that would take us any further down the road to, quote, theocracy, uh, than we were under the presidency of Dwight David Eisenhower, which you and I both remember, I think, Milton. We're both old enough to... I remember it rather fondly. Well, of course, it was, it was a benevolent period in American life. And if, if no one believed, including those of us, and I'm, I'm proudly, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, and I'm very active in the Jewish community, uh, and I understand my status in the United States as a member of a minority religion, uh, the most long-standing minority religion in the country, but we were very, very far from uh, the kind of theocratic, uh, authoritarian, intolerant uh, regime. Well, now look here, though, Michael. If you are Jewish and proud of it, uh, as I am indeed as well, uh, how can you call number four a big lie? It reads, America has always been a multicultural society strengthened by diversity. Multi-ethnic, not multicultural. Uh-huh. And there is all the difference in the world. Uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is that the Jews of Newport, there's a famous letter that George Washington wrote to the Turo Synagogue, the yep. Turo Congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, which is the longest continuing, uh, continually functioning uh, American Jewish congregation. And uh, the, the, the clear idea was that when Jewish people came to the United States, they could go to services on Saturday rather than on Sunday, observe the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, on Saturday rather than Sunday. But the embrace of American values and the embrace of a unified American culture was very important. It's, uh, Hector Saint-Jean de Cravacur in 1782, it's a very long time ago, it's right before the revolution was even officially yeah. over. He was a French nobleman who settled as an American farmer. Yes, and wrote a best-selling pamphlet called Letters from an American Farmer. Yeah. And he asked, who is this American, this new man? And he says he is one who is of Europe, uh, but leaves Europe behind, and, and embraces a new identity as American. I can't resist telling you a little story about the Truro Synagogue. Um, many years ago, when I was a young fellow, uh, I uh, worked for a while at the Naval War College. I was assigned to it uh, on a project uh, sponsored by the Office of Naval Research, and I spent essentially a summer uh, at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And I was very busy doing lots of things, but I wanted to get down to the synagogue. I knew it was there. And uh, finally, I had an afternoon off, and I went down and entered the Truro, which is just, as you know, a beautiful colonial building. Uh, but it was empty. So I wandered around uh, looking and uh, feeling a little as if I were violating a sacred space because I was the only one in the building, till there was a voice from the distance, which went as follows. Now, is there something I could be showing you? And I turned <laughs> around, and there was a young fellow with a great big black beard who identified himself as uh, the second rabbi of the congregation, and he was an Irishman. He was an Irish Jew from Dublin who was spending a year uh, in service at the synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. So there you have, uh, that's diversity of a sort as well. well. Well, it is. And one of the terms that most Americans misunderstand, and it was something that I, I actually didn't know before writing The Ten Big Lies, uh, was the term melting pot. The, yeah. the term melting pot stems from a smash hit Broadway play of 1904, written by Israel Zangwill. Exactly, yes. And he, he talked about America as the great melting pot, which is not a term of cooking or of cuisine. It's a term of metallurgy. 
it's not the idea that you're blind by blending different sauces together for a temporary thrill. It's that you're fusing different metals together, different alloys together to form something brand new and durable and uniquely American. Now, just down the coast from you in California uh, is somebody whose work you know, and I'm sure you know the man as well, uh, namely Hansen, who uh, uh, has done many books. He's a classical scholar, but a book he did a few years ago is titled Mexifornia. Oh, Victor Davis Hanson. Victor Davis Hanson, uh, in which he characterizes the situation in Southern California particularly as one in which there is a large population of Mexican immigrants, both legal and illegal, or documented and undocumented, as one says if one uses the standard liberal uh, uh, euphemistic language. Uh, But uh, they are not assimilating in the main because there are so many of them and they are that they... uh, They've created or transposed their own culture into that setting. Uh, They don't uh, commit their kids to uh, getting proper education in the schools. And in general, there's a problem of whether that ever-growing Mexican, more and more broadly Latino population of essentially displaced peasants and displaced workers, whether it will uh, blend into American culture or whether it will be ultimately a divisive element because so large and so... Uh, unassimilated becomes a source of further uh, further fractiousness. Indeed, we know as well that one movement, if it doesn't flourish, at least it's coming out of that general southwestern community, is La Raza, which proclaims the need or the necessity for taking back some of those states and giving them back to Mexico. La Raza actually does not support that, Milton, in, in all fairness. I mean, all right. I, I, I don't go There's a lesser La organization because, that does that. La Raza means the race. Yes, it does. It is a racially based movement. But, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Senator McCain and President Bush and uh, President-elect Obama have all addressed La Raza. La Raza does not want to give anything back. What's the name of the organization that does? It's there, composed... There, there, there is no formal organization. Oh, yes, this there is. It's run by uh, Mexican-American oh, academics. You, you mean Mecha, which is Mecha, which is on, on college campuses. Yes. Yes, uh, which is called the Mexican. It's it, but again, it's a student organization that has no political support. One of the things that's fascinating here to me, uh, Milton, is that I, I'm I'm a great fan of Victor Davis Hanson, and I know him well. And we've argued about this. I I happen to believe that the statistics that Michael Barone and many others cite mm-hmm. are far more persuasive than the alarmist statistics about Latinos in the United what, States. What does Barone cite? Well, that, that basically the assimilation process is working virtually identically with Mexican-Americans as it did with our grandparents mm. and as it did with Michael Barone's Italian grandparents. He has an interesting book called The New Americans yeah. in which he suggests that the three biggest, most significant ethnic groups of today and some of the problems that are attributed or imputed to them reflect some of the same concerns with the three great ethnic groups of the 19th century, Jews, uh, in that case, Jews, uh, Irish, and Italians. And Mexicans play the role of Italians. They're assumed to be um, emotional and clannish, and Mm. they're involved in organized crime. The the truth of the matter is, and and there are government uh, figures about this, that for third-generation Mexican-Americans, over 80% of them speak better English than they do Spanish, and virtually 100%. Uh, get by in English. Well, that takes care of that big lie. Uh, we're going to commercial again in a moment. And since we're going to commercials, it's uh, this is particularly appropriate, or apposite at least, namely, big lie number five. The power of big business 
hurts the country and oppresses the people. We've heard a fair amount of that in political parlance and political argument uh, in recent years. Uh, there are many people who would uh, certainly uh, fully pound the table in agreement with that assertion, lie or otherwise. The power of big business hurts the country and oppresses the people. Michael Medved, author of The Big, the Ten Big Lies About America, Combating Destructive Distortions About Our Nation. That is just published by Crown Forum. And you know, uh, number five, the power of big business hurts the country and oppresses the people, uh, is to some degree uh, a lie more accepted on the left than on the right. I think if you ask what are the major differences between the two major parties, uh, that's a dimension on which they really contrast. They do. The, the hostility toward business on the part of any American, of course, is totally preposterous because there is no institution in American life that is involved with our lives more frequently or more intimately than the institution of for-profit business. Uh, the uh, phone line on which we are speaking right now, the all the machines that you are using for your nightly broadcast, the uh, coffee maker that uh, your your listeners are using to brew up a cup of joe, uh, the heat in the homes, the homes themselves, the blankets that people will use when they go to sleep, and the mattresses, it's all there because of business. And the idea that this could be substituted for by somebody working in a garage or a little workshop somewhere is ridiculous. The complexity of our life demands big business. Yet, there has been a long-ranging hostility towards big business in the American tradition. You start your chapter on this with a book that they gave you when you were a kid. Yes, and a wonderful book it was, and it inspired my youthful imagination. It's a book by a guy named Roger Butterfield uh, called The American Past, and he was a conventional New Deal liberal who basically felt that the profit motive was, was greed. I mean, what, what's peculiar about this is that people try to ignore or cover up the fact that all of the initial colonies that began the United States were corporations. Uh, the Virginia Company, which uh, started Jamestown, the London Company, which started Plymouth, Plymouth Plantation, the Pilgrims, uh, they were originally organized as a corporation with investors and, and with an attempt to make profit. Making profit is, is not an ugly pursuit. But, you I know, there, there is something that gripes some of us, and I wonder if it even gripes you. Uh, take it down to the individual level. I work pretty hard for such money as I've accumulated, and I have not accumulated a vast fortune. Uh, uh, but I am aware around me, particularly in the city of Chicago, but more broadly in this country, of uh, vast entrepreneurial enterprises, corporate enterprises, some of which get run into the ground, or these days many of them have gone into very serious trouble. And I'm aware of the institution of the golden parachute. No matter how much some of these guys mess up, no matter how much uh, they misuse some of their workers, uh, when they are kicked out or when they get out uh, to save their lives and to save their reputation, uh, they float to the ground with an extra 30 or 50 or 100 million dollars. Yes, and, and again, I think... There's that, reason to resent that, isn't I, there? I think the, the people who most should resent it should be the stockholders of those companies. Well, that I'm a stockholder, them. among other things. Well, yeah, but you see, I would, I would treat that very similarly. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, Milton, are you? I have been in my time. Okay. Uh, there's a guy named Carl Pavano who I think is headed... He, he was with the Yankees the last four years. He was injured. He pitched not at all, and he had signed a contract, I think, for 11 or $12 million yeah. dollars a mm -hmm. year. I, in baseball, because the people who actually can throw a ball 95 miles an hour are so limited in number 
you can get a tremendous payment if you can do that. And even if you fail to do that, you get a veritable golden parachute. And, and it's the same kind of competition. Michael Milken, of all people, uh, the reformed, he, he, would, he would say, uh, criminal. Uh, he, was, he did spend time yeah. incarcerated. But Milken makes this point, is that the competition for the corporate superstars is very similar to the corporate uh, competition for the superstars of baseball. And like those superstars of baseball, they're so eager to get them to sign up to increase the stock value of a given company that they make as part of those initial agreements these kinds of uh, golden parachute arrangements in advance. Maybe that will change in the wake of uh, the economic disaster that hope. we've run into. One can hope so. Um, let's uh, choose yet another of these Big Ten. Well, you choose. Which one Which one particularly gripes you of the, of the ones we've not yet discussed? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you one that, that, that um, it bothers me a great deal, and it, it turns up every year this way, is the uh, big lie about third parties and their so-called honorable history and what a useful role they play and how much mm-hmm. we need a third party in America. The, the truth is that the whole history of third parties in this country is a melancholy history, and it is a losing history. Uh, we have never had anything close to a successful third party candidate for president. And this, of course, people will be, I'm sure, picking up the phones and going, well, what about Abraham Lincoln? Uh, Lincoln, by the time he joined the Republican Party, the Republican Party was already the leading party in the United States. The Republican Party first appeared on ballots anywhere in the congressional elections of 1854. And in that election, the Republicans elected a plurality in the House of Representatives and elected the Speaker of the House, Nathaniel Banks. So Republicans were never a third party. They were always either a first Well, but what about this argument, Michael? Third parties have had possibly a great utility, even though they've never won the presidency. Uh, For example, they used to say this a lot on the liberal left when um, I was in closer contact with the liberal left. The Socialist Party in the 1930s, as run by, or at least as headed by Norman Thomas, had many particular innovative ideas, which were ultimately, which were popularized through their advocacy and were ultimately adopted by Roosevelt as part of the New Deal. Well, I I would argue that uh, Norman Thomas, of course, continued to run against Roosevelt. And what you will find is occasionally third parties like the Free Soil Party, the early abolition party before the Republicans, you will find third parties picking up important points or important reform. Maybe these days the Libertarian Party is picking up on some important points. Yeah, but the Libertarian Party is a particularly disgusting example. My goodness, why? Well, because every single election since 1980, they've been getting less and less votes. In other words, for people who believe, against all odds, that the Libertarian Party, which has a more and more pathetic showing every year, I mean, Bob Barr, you know Bob Barr got less than one-fourth of one percent of the popular vote this year? Uh-huh. And he's a former congressman. To be sure. So, so at a certain point, in other words, the, the point that you made about the ideas coming over into the mainstream, when someone leaves a third party and enters real politics, as William Jennings Bryan did with populist ideas in 1896, when you are part of one of the two big parties, then you can get your ideas taken seriously. If you're off on the political fringe in a masturbatory exercise that, that has no chance of success, you end up harming rather than advancing your ideas and agenda. Now, Michael, here is your assignment if you choose to accept it. Uh, you remember what TV show that comes from? Oh, sure. It's Mission Impossible. I couldn't quite remember. Yes, yes. Mission Impossible. Uh, when we uh, 
uh, transact another news break, which is coming in just about a minute. Uh, with your book in mind and with the other lies uh, that we've mentioned but haven't got to, but um, with all of that as background, I would like to ask you, as a leading conservative writer, broadcaster, columnist, and so on, I would like to ask you to focus on the present American political economic moment. Uh, a new administration is about to take over. We know what we've been through during this election campaign. I wonder how you see things, uh, whether you see uh, something of hope or whether you, who certainly supported McCain and the Republican candidacy, feel some, if not despair, at least uh, uh, mild reactive depression, uh, and uh, what we ought to be thinking about, what we ought to be doing for the general good of the country uh, in coming years. And directly back to Michael Medved in just a moment after and during that moment, uh, I want to simply uh, urge all who are listening who've got a question to raise or a thought to present to get in there and uh, call us at 591-7200. The lines are now open. 312, the area code, then 591-7200. For our Internet listeners listening far away, including our friends in Australia, uh, if you want to get to us to pose a question or comment, the best way, of course, is by email, and the email address is, as ever it has been, extension720, as one word, extension720 at tribune.com. The phone number again, 591-7200. We look forward to your calls and emails, and we'll turn to them in just a few minutes. Michael, uh, I was really asking you to comment on the present general political economic situation, but one way to get into that is to take yet another of your big lies, it occurs to me. Uh, lie number six, government programs offer the only remedy for economic downturns and poverty. At this time of recession blending into uh, depression, uh, many in government on the Republican side, as well as just about everybody on the Democratic side, including our uh, president about to be installed, uh, are fully committed to government spending lots and lots of money, in this case, to rescue the major corporations and to restore uh, employment, and more broadly to also, ultimately, as was in the Democratic platform, to uh, get back to social betterment programs for those who uh, need a leg up. You know that very well. In this case, what you call a big lie is really, uh, at the moment, uh, underlined and reinforced by many of our politicians. Well, it is. And, and the, the particularly uh, mendacious and dangerous nature of big lie number six in my book is uh, that this is the only way to deal with an economic downturn. Uh, one of the things that uh, I was actually surprised to find out in researching the book is um, most Americans assume that the Great Depression was unique, that it was sui genres, that it was one of a kind, that mm -hmm. we had utterly unprecedented. And it's not true. By most economic measures, we had depressions in 1837 and 1893 that were every bit as severe, as cataclysmic as the Great Depression. The difference is they ended more quickly because we had leadership at the time that had the good sense to allow the business cycle to take its course. Roosevelt extended the Depression, and, and I believe that the evidence is frankly incontrovertible. We had on this program, uh, I guess about a year ago, right after she wrote a book on the subject, Amity Schles, who makes a very convincing case that the New Deal extended uh, the economic downturn. Yes, as, as does, by the way, uh, David Kennedy, former president of Stanford University, yeah. who I cite mm -hmm. in The Ten Big Lies About America, as does Arthur Schlesinger, of all people. You see, when I began digging into some of the material about the Great Depression, 
finding out that throughout the 1930s, during six full years of Roosevelt's presidency, the unemployment rate never got below 14%, and then it went up again dramatically, up to above 20% in the 1938 new recession. With all of that uh, going on, how could Roosevelt have this reputation as the great economic savior who brought recovery? So I went back and looked at my college textbook, dusted it off, and it was, it, this is from the 1960s. It was a book written by Arthur Schlesinger that we studied at American History at Yale. And uh, in the Schlesinger book, he acknowledges that the New Deal failed as a recovery program. David Kennedy, president of Stanford, fine American economic historian, said that the New Deal was many things, but it was not a recovery program. So th this uh, effort to sort of recast Obama is the, as the new Roosevelt, I would certainly hope not, because if, if he is the new Roosevelt, then indeed we may be in for a very, very long, bitter, uh, extended depression. Well, we do have a commitment from him to uh, add an extra trillion or so uh, to the bailout, as it's now being called, and he's not being strongly opposed by the Republicans on this, is he? Well, no, but I, I think he's being opposed by some of the economic advisors within the administration itself. I, I was actually a little bit encouraged by his speech uh, at, at George Mason University. And see, the one thing about Obama is, uh, and, and you, you know him better than most from your years at the University of Chicago and his years at, at UFC, and uh, from his... I didn't have much contact with him at the University of Chicago, nor did many members of the law faculty, in fact. One of them has written an article about that, uh, saying that he was in and he was out, and he wasn't somebody who really, uh, who really warmed easily to questions or to uh, discussion. Well, I think our colleague Charles Krauthammer wrote a fascinating piece about President-elect Obama, yeah. uh, about the fact that at every stage in his life, at Punahou School in Hawaii, at uh, Occidental College, at Columbia College, at, of Columbia University, uh, at Harvard Law School, he is someone who did not form strong attachments. Mm -hmm. the, the only strong attachment he truly seems to have formed was not with with Bill Ayers, though there was something of a of a collegial relationship, but his only strong attachment was to Michelle, and uh, it, it is it is unusual for a politician because if you if you know John McCain at all, and I, I got to know him reasonably well, he is a great boon companion. I mean, he he was inseparable with Senator Graham and Senator Lieberman, and and they went out together in this campaign like a couple of kids. Obama is much more of a loner. And it's very, very unusual for he's a president. A, he's a cool cat. Well, he is that, but there's also there's a great deal that's very mysterious about yeah, him. There is, and 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 that's not necessarily a terrible thing. I I am not. Th there are people, as you know, many of our colleagues uh, on the conservative side of things, who see an Obama presidency as the end of the world. I have been mostly, not entirely, but mostly heartened and encouraged by his appointments. And one would hope that he would he would have the the good sense. It, it, he he can't decide whether he's going to impersonate Lincoln or Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt. And and my great hope is that uh, Lincoln would win out. What should he learn from Lincoln that he would not learn from Roosevelt? Learn from from Lincoln is pragmatism. Is not a commitment to ideology. That one of the most significant things uh -huh. Lincoln said was that uh, I my, I mean to save the Union, and if I can save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I'll do that. If I can uh, save the Union by leaving all the slaves as they are, I would do that. If I can save the Union by freeing some of the slaves and leaving others as they are, I would do that. 
uh, Obama's focus should be economic recovery. And um, again, he, unlike Roosevelt, he has actually made part of the program for economic recovery some tax cuts and some business tax cuts, and that's very important. Now, Michael, once again, I don't know what your commercial schedule is like when you're on the air, but ours, as you can see, is <laughs> moderately demanding. So once again, we pause for a quick round of commercials and then directly to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero. Some lines are taken. Some are available. If you move quickly, you will get through. If you don't and hit the busy signal, of course, the proper strategy is to call again after we say goodnight to a prior caller. <coughs> also available in infinite supply is <coughs> is room on our email uh, roster, and the email address extension seven twenty at tribune dot com. And we go directly to the phones for your calls. Uh, whether in the form of questions or commentary or what have you. Mike, you like to have people argue with you on the radio at times. Uh, I do. I, so I maybe we'll get some it. of that as well. Uh, Michael Medved is my guest tonight. Uh, his uh, new book is The Ten Big Lies About America, Combating Destructive Distortions About Our Nation. And that's just published by Crown Books. Five nine one seven two double zero. If you've been trying to reach us and hitting the busy signal, we've now got a few lines cleared. So do certainly try again quickly. We go to Michael in Rockford, Illinois. Good evening. Good evening. Hello, gentlemen and fellow listeners. Uh, question regarding the assimilation of the Hispanic population. Just today at work, um, a woman I worked with me, born in France, and uh, she commented that um, there was never the publication of uh, all the government forms, ballots, uh, street signs, everything in Spanish, um, or in French, sorry, and the other woman, uh, a German immigrant, um, surely it's got to be different to some degree. Uh, I'm very encouraged to hear about the research that says two or three generations down they are assimilating, but it, it, it has to be different, and, it, and it's not a perceived assimilation, I think. I deal with uh, cleaning people on a routine basis and, and lawn care people, and I can't communicate with them. Okay. And, and they, uh, in much the same way that my grandfather, who came as an adult from Ukraine in 1910, uh, he had a tough time communicating with his own grandchildren. He never really mastered English. And the, the question always is, what happens to the second generation and to the third generation? And uh, the, the, the evidence about this is, is there is a pattern here. And the idea that Hispanic immigrants, uh, because Mexico is so close, are... Uh, completely different from all other immigrants in American history just is not supported by any of the data or any of the research. There's a much greater similarity. Now, one of the problems here, and this is one of the reasons that I wrote this chapter of the book, is the, the biggest enemy of assimilation is this idea, this horrible idea of multiculturalism. Because what allowed all of our grandparents to assimilate was the notion that, that you should that it was a desirable thing to do. And when you have uh, governmental entities that print ballots in Spanish or in Chinese or in French, which is an outrage to me, uh, when you have government, uh, governmental entities that try to discourage assimilation, that is the heart of the problem. The, uh, the, the, the proper response to immigration, it seems to me, of every kind, is affirming Americanism and assimilation. Michael, I was just today looking at... Um, the uh, websites of some high schools for reasons that uh, I need not uh, explain, but they have to do with my grandchildren, to be sure. Um, and I was rather uh, startled, maybe not startled, to find that most of these high schools, both pro 
public and private, particularly the private ones, uh, in their general statement of intention and their self-definition, uh, stress diversity. Cultural diversity is something which is appreciated and which is uh, somehow properly celebrated in our school, was the general assertion. Which is idiotic. And, and fortunately, uh, in the Seattle area where I live, the, the predominant immigrant group is not Hispanic, it's Asian. Uh, we, um, uh, we live in a small town in the state of Washington that is, oh, it's close to a third Asian. And, and I will tell you that, that, that these people who are either immigrants themselves, the children of immigrants, want desperately to assimilate and do not want uh, attention to specific Chinese or Korean or Japanese culture, but, but want their children to be here to be Americans. And, and that, it seems to me, is, is the sense in which, by the way, this is a great opportunity for the Republican Party. And, and one of the worst things that happened in this election of 2008, which you were asking about the political situation before Milton, was that the Asian vote, which split evenly between Kerry and Bush, went almost two to one for Obama. And part of the reason, uh, again here, was the, the idea, and I think President Bush was right about it with what he said today, that many, many people have begun to perceive the Republican Party as anti-immigrant. I think being anti-diversity is what we should be, being anti-multiculturalism, being in favor of one America and one American ideal. But that affirms rather than denies the true intentions and dreams of most people who immigrate to this country. Our thanks to the caller for a valuable first question. Let's go directly to another. And here is uh, Steve on the north side of Chicago. Good evening. Good evening, good evening. Um, I agree with, with most of what you say. Uh, uh, fiscally, I'm, I'm on your side, um, except for one glaring error, and I think that the two-party system is going to be the death of America, um, and I think I would replace that lie with the lie that we have only three branches of government. The fourth branch of government is the monetary branch, and it was created outside of the Constitution. Most Americans uh, don't know that this, this body controls all of their money, and um, that's you know, quite a big lie that I think Andrew Johnson, I believe you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, was the one who said that on his tombstone that he killed the banks. Andrew and the Jackson. Idea of, Andrew Jackson, I'm sorry. And, right, uh, but here, here's the point that you need to remember. Do you know who founded the Bank of the United States, which, which actually had more power even than the Federal Reserve System? It was founded by Alexander Hamilton, who was one of our constitutional fathers. So the idea that an independent bank that operates outside the government uh, should, should be used as a source to deposit governmental funds. That's an idea that goes back to President Washington and the first Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, both of whom played leading roles at the Constitutional Convention. So I, I, don't, I don't buy this Ron Paul uh, position that, that somehow the, the Federal Reserve is some kind of which has been around since 1913, some kind of monstrous extra-constitutional growth that threatens our republic. Well, I think that uh, the Federal Reserve, the, the, another big lie regarding the Federal Reserve is that they control inflation, when in fact they're the ones who produce inflation. Well, then why, why does inflation exist in other countries? Uh, well, I'm not sure if other countries are on the gold standard, but if we went back on the gold standard, <laughs> it would control the inflation. And okay, they, not, they in not, fact not, control... not necessarily. It's not that simple. And look, I, I happen to support the gold standard. I agree with you on that. I think it would be a good idea if we, if we could re-monetize to some extent. However, 
I don't think it's practical right now in this current situation. And some of the conspiratorial stuff that you hear about the beast from Jekyll Island, I've read all those books. I deal with conspiracy theories all the time. And um, the Federal Reserve does not want to harm you or harm the economy because most of the people who are involved in the banking system recognize that the only way they do well is if the economy generally does well. Our well, thanks to the they... caller. Sir, I, I fear we must move on, but I do appreciate very much uh, that quite intelligent call. Uh, but, Michael, before I stop once again for the usual reasons, I must read you an email I've got in front of me. Uh, shame on you, Milt, is the heading. And uh, it, what follows is, shame on you for allowing Michael Medved to refer to the French, who criticized the U.S. as, quote, long-nosed French, not once, but twice. Since when do you condone labeling an entire nation or race with a physical insult? You wouldn't tolerate a guest referring to, quote, hook-nosed Jews. I find both comments disgusting. I'm surprised you don't. Uh, I think he's missing something. You want to explain what he's missing? Yes. I, I, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. French, that, French don't really have particularly long noses. No, they do not. And I'm not meaning to suggest, as someone with a fairly long nose myself, I'm not meaning to suggest that, that they do. It's, uh, the, the figure of speech is looking down your long nose. And I, I do think that, that arrogance uh, is a cultural quality that is rightly imputed to the children of Gaul. It may well be. Um, some people uh, criticize me for uh, occasionally lapsing into other languages, but one of my favorite sayings is by uh, La Rochefoucauld. And in French it goes, Dans la diversité de nos meilleurs amis, nous trouvons quelque chose qui ne nous déplaît pas. Which is to say, in the misfortunes of our friends, we find something that is not totally displeasing. Uh, and I think that's very true of the French. It's often true of the French in individual life, but it's certainly true also of that nation in its regard for American troubles. They rather enjoy uh, the sight of America having difficulties. Yes, as most recently illustrated by the most recent French traveler to come to the United States and write about it, Henri Lévy. He was on the program. I he, can imagine. He carried and on probably just had a great time with him. Well, I did, in fact, yes. Uh, we are going to pause for an update on the news in just a moment. I see one line available on the phone board, 591-7200. And if you've got a uh, um, a, a comment on the use or misuse of metaphor on this program, which is what we've got from uh, that last uh, emailer, whatever you want to say by way of email, the email address, extension720 at tribune.com. And we go to... Walter, who's listening in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Good evening, sir. Yes, good evening, gentlemen. I have a question for you, and uh, I'm a long-time listener. In fact, I've gotten an education from you, Milt, over the last 20, 30 years that you've been doing your show. Thank you, sir. And uh, uh, I, Israel's uh, biggest ally is the United States, and rightfully so. And I'm a conservative, and I don't understand why the Jewish community in the United States uh, uh, primarily are liberals. Uh, can you explain that to me? 
And primarily vote for Democrats as well. Yeah, and, and vote for Democrats. Well, a valuable question, I would say. Michael, your response? Well, first of all, it's a particularly poignant question with a, a great friend of the Jewish community and a great friend of the state of Israel like John McCain, who uh, lost 78% estimated of the Jewish vote to Barack Obama, whose uh, own... Uh, history of uh, support for Israel has been, uh, I mean, much much more varied, yeah. uh, frankly, particularly from early in his career. Uh, now, I'm I'm encouraged by some of the things that President-elect Obama said recently, but look, it's it's a it's a very very big question. And just in brief, I think one of the reasons that uh, the advances among Jewish voters that President Reagan had begun to make were yeah. turned away, and and Ronald Reagan. Uh, just about evenly split the Jewish vote with Jimmy Carter in 1980. Uh, one of the reasons that those advances have been turned away is because of Jewish fears, I think inappropriate Jewish fears, of the influence of what's called the Christian right. Um, I, I am one uh, committed Jewish activist who is not at all afraid of the support for Israel and the support for traditional American values by Christian conservatives, but many Jews are, and I think that what you find in the Jewish community is that to the extent that the Jewish people are comfortable with their own religious path, to the extent that Jewish people are themselves religious, they feel less threatened by the religiosity of other people. And I that's bet. why you, you find among Orthodox Jews, supposedly 70% voted for McCain. I see. All right. Well, thank you. Great explanation. Thank you, sir, for the call. A valuable question, I would say. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. Before we go back to uh, to the phones, as I do remember it, Michael, uh, you've got a friend, and I guess he's an associate in some of your undertakings in um, in Seattle, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Daniel Lappin, uh-huh. uh, who is very much concerned with the same matter, is he not? Yes, he is. Uh, I mean, Rabbi Lappin is. Uh on many issues, more conservative uh, than than I I would be, uh, much less willing to compromise on <laughs> some 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 issues than than I am. But he's a dear friend and has been a friend and teacher for believe it or not, 30 years. And he, he runs uh, some organization, sort of as a conservative mission to the Jews, does he not? Well, it's it's actually his organization toward tradition. Uh, existed um, uh, and it, it, it isn't as active right now. He's now doing a, a program called Thought Tools and his, his book, uh, Thou Shalt Prosper, The Ten Commandments of Making Money, which is about a Jewish view of, of business, has taken up most of his attention. But the whole idea was to bring uh, Jewish people who were clearly identified as Jewish together with Christian people who were clearly identified as Christians on uh, items of common interest, particularly social issues, uh, defense of marriage, defense of human life, uh, defense of the rights of parents to raise their own children. And uh, Rabbi Lappin, of course, as a father of seven, is uh, <laughs> particularly sensitive on that score. We'll go back to the phones in just a moment. Uh, if you've been trying to reach us, I say, to all those who are listening and not getting through, we've now got a line or two available. So. Whoever moves quickly will get through. If, um, uh, Milton, if I could interject, I Please. am I am actually going to be speaking at a Jewish congregation in uh, Chicagoland, weather permitting. Yes, you mentioned that earlier. Let's get the specifics on that, indeed. Yeah, I'm speaking in Skokie uh, on Saturday night, this coming Saturday night, 
and uh, the public is very much invited. Uh, the program will begin at 7 o'clock uh, after the Sabbath on Saturday night at Congregation uh, Kesser Mariv, which is at 4341 Gulf Road in Skokie. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be talking about the Ten Big Lies About America. I'm going to be signing copies of my book and of my previous book, Right Turns, and taking questions from the audience. And uh, we certainly invite any Jewish members of your audience, any Christian members of your audience, any Hindu members of your audience, uh, anyone who wants to come out on a what might be a chilly evening. How about pagan agnostic members of Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> again, a great bit of uh, uh, the, some of the people I most enjoy arguing with on, on the radio show are uh, followers of Christopher Hitchens and, and oh, yes. other neo-pagans. Uh, at Shefer Mariv uh, uh, on Gulf Road. Yes, that's this Saturday night. And then Sunday, I'm doing a book signing at Borders mm-hmm. in Oak Brook, Illinois, uh, which is at uh, 1516th Street uh, in Oak Brook, uh, Illinois, and that's at uh, 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And with that, let's go uh, directly back to the phones, and we go to uh, Brian in Crystal Lake. Good evening. Good evening, Milt. Uh, hello, Mr. Medved. It's a pleasure talking to somebody from the uh, greatest country on God's green earth. Well, thank you very much. Um my my one question to you is it, it seems to me that uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong that we've we've lost an entire generation practically to violence, drug abuse, and abortion. What if what if anything can we do to turn that around as a society? And I'll, I'll hang up and listen. Thank you and God bless you. Well, don't hang up, sir. Stay with us. I think um, let's do a little bit of dialogue. Well, he did hang up, eager to get away so he can hear you on the phone. I uh, hear you rather on the radio. I got something to add to that as well. Let me just pile on to the call uh, and add my own. The one chapter of yours that I have some difficulty with, and I told you this, I think, earlier today, uh, is, um, uh, well, it's the one on your last big lie, which is um, America is in the midst of an irreversible moral decline. Some of the people you mentioned there, including uh, uh, Judge Bork, for example, uh, have been on my program, uh, just as they've been undoubtedly on yours, and... uh, their analyses persuade me. Bill Bennett's analysis with his cultural indicators indicating some significant loss of moral authority and clarity in American life and decay in the family and certainly as he was much concerned with in his assignment as drugs are, the uh, drug plague, which still persists, yes, may go the, the, up, the, it may go down, but there is something that has gone wrong in uh, the, uh, the culture more broadly uh, and more narrowly in family uh, something is out of whack, and one, as a grandfatherly type, begins to feel very concerned about it. Well, and it's appropriate to be concerned, but Americans have always been concerned. I was just going to say, Milton, that uh, if you talk to Bill Bennett uh, more recently, and I no. talk to him all the time, he has updated his index of leading culture. He's feeling a little better now, is he? Well, it is. I mean, no. for instance, take the abortion rate. Um, and abortion rate tells... A quite a quite a good deal. The abortion rate is down by more than forty percent. Uh, the out of wedlock birth rate had gone down steadily fifteen years in a row. Now that's remarkable. Until this past year, it now is ticking up very slightly again. Divorce has gone down consistently every year since nineteen eighty. Well, one of the reasons for that is that uh, cohabitation without marriage has gone up. Well, when they when they split, they don't get divorced. 
That, that's that's true. However, the truth is that the same number of people, the, the rate of marriage has gone down much less than the rate of divorce. A higher percentage, and by the way, there is no 50% divorce rate. That's a myth and a libel uh, that, that is not supported by any data from the Census Bureau or from any academic source. The, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, Ben Wattenberg, uh, did a very important book called The First Measured Century, and the divorce yeah. rate in the United States isn't close to 50%. Ben has always looked on the upside. I refer to him, I have referred to him as Dr. Yes. <laughs> Which, but what, you see, Americans have always said yes, and, and this is the point. It's not that things, everything is better in this country. They're not. There are many, many things that are worse. I mean, I, I would take the fact that that Americans now spend over 30 hours a week watching television. That's I'll tell you one thing that I know is incontrovertibly worse and gets worse year by year, and that's the quality of education and thus what our kids learn, whether in a secondary school or, for that matter, in college itself. No, I, I think that's, that's completely true. How, however, as you know as a historian, Milton, that, that America has not been a straight line. It has been a series of ups and downs. Uh, people, Henry, um, Henry Adams, when he wrote about the United States in 1800, uh, talks about the, the first years of this republic, the first 20 years, were very rocky years, with terrible alcoholism, terrible out-of-wedlock birth, marital problems, violence, and uh, then that led to the, the Great Awakening of the 1830s and 40s, and a religious revival in this country that then gave rise to the abolition movement. The, the point about the United States is the, every generation in the history of this country has said that their generation was uniquely doomed and damned and the worst and the most corrupt and the, the most fallen generation in American history. They can't all be right. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, as Gertrude Himmelfarb argues very persuasively about Great Britain, that that societal progress morally is sometimes goes up, sometimes goes down. The point is nothing is irreversible for Americans. This has always been a can-do nation. And when you look at the crime rate, and, and again, I dare say that in the city of Chicago, uh, there is a dramatic difference between the sense of public safety in 2009 and what might have uh, obtained in, in the city in, oh, say, 1975. Well, it varies somewhat. Last year was a bad year. The murder rate went up uh, more than it has over the last 15 years or thereabouts. Yeah, but, but still, compared to the 70s? Uh, there are higher years for murder in Chicago, but this was a particularly bad year. Okay, and, and, and again, which, which just goes to the basic point, that this, this notion that the end is near, uh, it, it isn't supported. And, and I'll give you another thing. You mentioned drugs before. Uh, the, the use and abuse of every, every serious drug category uh, has improved dramatically. It's one of the great unheralded successes of the Bush administration. And yes, there have been some successes of the Bush administration. When will the country realize that? <laughs> Probably about five years from now. Uh, uh, let me read you something, um, but I'll ask you then to hold your response until after the last batch of commercials. <clears throat> Here's an email. I agree with much of what he says, he being you, Michael, but also disagree with a great deal. He is right with respect to big business and business in general, but I believe it should be clear to all that it is the responsibility of government to set the rules so that we avoid at least some of the most egregious successes of those who make it to the top of the corporate world and feel entitled to obscene uh, compensation. The fact is, most of them are fairly ordinary people with a big ego and the good fortune to be in the right place at the right time. Those who deserve the riches 
they have, such as Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, or Steve Jobs, are very rare people. I make this observation from long service in the corporate world. I'll look forward to your response. The fact is, most of the very, very overly compensated, say that uh, listener, are fairly ordinary people with a big ego and a good fortune to be in the right place at the right time, and he resents it. Yeah, and uh, except that's a problem. It's one of the reasons that, uh, for those of us who are religious believers, that the Tenth Commandment, which is the only one that has uh, to do with feelings, commands you not to covet. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it can ruin your life. Look, the, the fact is, I, I agree. I, I sometimes look around, and I look around even in radio companies, and you will see people who are very powerful and draw very big salaries who seem to be total boobies and, and utterly clueless and hopeless. However, uh, who should decide other than the stockholders and the corporate officials? Because once you get the government deciding what the level of compensation should be, uh, then then you're you're into the same difficulty you have of people deciding the appropriate pay who don't actually pay the money. Well, come on, the stockholders, uh, the ordinary stockholders, don't necessarily decide. Other uh, large stockholders, who also are appointed officers in the corporation, decide how to compensate their colleagues. Yeah, and, and, and they're all I, in, a, I, I in can... a kind of working conspiracy to to sustain each other. Right, I, I I understand that happens, but the idea that what what are you going to establish some kind of top pay, some kind of pay ceiling mandated by the government, and it, why not do that for movie stars and athletes? I mean, the, the the truth of the matter is that there are very very few people who are truly capable of doing a decent job running a very large corporation. And this is one of the things Including I Including some of the people who run large corporations. I beg pardon? Including some of the people who run <laughs> large corporations. That's true. It, not everyone is capable of it. Yeah. But the, the, the point about this is that when someone is running a business, uh, the, the chances are he or she is not exploiting his workers. The chances are that those workers, the people mm-hmm. who get the jobs in the business, are even more dependent upon the creativity and the incredibly hard work of the people in the position of bosses. Sure. Michael, with that, back to another caller, this one from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Sam, hello, you're on the air. Yes, hi, gentlemen. Uh, Mr. Medved, your point about the the big business, uh, when we go to the petroleum industry, we see a lot of collusion, it seems to me, and conglomeration. Uh, At one time, we had a thousand brands and... uh, gas stations in this country, you could uh, receive uh, dolls, teddy bears, uh, green stamps, blue stamps, purple stamps, pink stamps, I mean, any every color I, of... I remember oh. I, once, I once got steak knives as a premium for getting gas yes. in the late 60s, yes. and as a result of carrying those steak knives in my glove compartment, I was arrested in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's my <laughs> only arrest record. Wonderful. Because I had a, a concealed weapons in my glove compartment. I can't believe that. That, that happened in America. <laughs> uh, so, well, I can't believe that they actually uh, gave you something uh, free for getting gas. Uh, the thing is that uh, now all the gas prices are within a penny or two of each other. Uh, it seems to me that uh, this is big business going mad and crazy. But I, I, I've got to say, I'm one of those people, I think that it's very easy when the gas prices are $4 to say, oh, these oil companies, they're gouging us. But you'll notice, if they really could control the prices so well, why did they let the prices go down from $4 to below $2? Uh, well, there was, uh, so there, 
a case of supply and demand. Well, exactly. So oh, the, 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 the system is, works. Uh, yeah, but the point, yes, it works because of the citizens out here burning wood and driving within the speed limit or less than the speed limit. I, I, I understand, but uh, the, po- the point is if you consume less fuel, the price will go down. If you consume more fuel, the price will go up. If you produce more fuel, the price will go down. If you produce less fuel, the price will go up. It's basic economics. It's not a conspiracy. Not when when you when I see those Saudis and on television and the other Arabs on television telling we're going to cut the supply of oil. It's not a matter of supply and demand. It's collusion, Mr. Medved. Well, the the point is that that the Middle East it does not produce all of the world's oil. It doesn't even produce the majority of the world's oil. Uh, Russia is a major oil producer. Canada is a yes, major oil producer. Yes, they're in we import, the we import, also. We import more oil from Canada than we do from any other country. They're all, but, um, I see that Putin there, you know, he's formed a, a, a gas monopoly. Okay, so, so how do you blame the oil companies for this? I mean, if the they're oil companies could wave a magic wand and put a bunch of dead dinosaurs under the earth in Chicago, they'd do it. Our thanks to the caller. I know you enjoy opposition, Michael, but <laughs> it's late in the evening. And I just want to save a little bit of time for, uh, for uh, to muse just a bit on something that interests me a good deal, and, does, and you'll understand why, um, because you're involved in it as well. It's uh, academic centers and what, how they shape people. You, as it happens, are a graduate of the Yale Law School. I know that among your classmates were the two Clintons. Indeed, you once told me that you think you may have introduced them to one another. But I've heard that claim uh, for many others as well. But we look at the five presidents who met, re- the four presidents and the incoming president-elect who met recently in the White House. Um, the uh, Clinton is um, a Yale man. Uh, Bush one and Bush two are Yale men, though Bush two also went to Harvard. And uh, let me see, what else do we have? Obama. Obama's, Obama's a, a Harvard Obama's graduate. a Harvard man, exactly. And Jimmy Carter's a graduate of the Naval Academy. Uh, of Annapolis, yeah. What does, the, what does higher education, or for that matter education generally, have to do with shaping one's mentality, one's attitudes, and even one's course in life? How do you reflect for yourself and your own? Remember, I was also a teacher at Yale. I was an assistant professor at Yale. Uh, what does uh, that sort of experience do? For that matter, why have so many presidents come from Yale and Harvard? Well, I think more recently, uh, and, and that's, that's really the interesting thing, is that early in the Republic, when Yale and Harvard were among the only colleges and universities in the Republic, we had a smaller percentage of Yale and Harvard students. I mean, if you, if you take a look at the United States, Gerald Ford had a Yale degree. You have, what is it, four out of the last six presidents. Gerald Ford played All-American football for Yale. Well, for Michigan. Yale well, for Michigan, school. then he went to Yale. That's yes, it. that's that right. Way. But in any event, it seems to me that what you have right now is you have to ask yourself, what kind of crazy kid ends up uh, orienting his entire life from junior high school on to get into Yale or Harvard? That is precisely kid. the kind of crazy kid who's going to run for president someday. You mean somebody who's marked by high ambition from the beginning? By ridiculously high ambition and competitiveness, because the, the truth of the matter is that there are 30 universities that, that can provide you just as worthy a source of information. It's the prestige, it's the obsession with, with winning at, at any cost of being number one. That defines the people who go to our top universities today, and that's exactly what defines people who succeed in politics. We were talking earlier about overcompensated, um, uh, overcompensated uh, uh, officers of large corporations. I know one Yale lawyer who um, became 
just about the top guy in a large corporation in the publishing industry and who made a big shift and a big investment which really did great injury to his corporation. And when he left, uh, he had a quite golden parachute. No, well, <laughs> look, it, uh, that, that kind of uh, golden parachute experience is, is, is again, not uncommon. The, the question is, what do you do about it? You know, I say all this without naming names, but it's a corporation rather close to my heart. Uh, I won't draw any inference from what you've just said. Right. But but the the truth of the matter is, look, the the profit system is far more reliable, it seems to me, as a means of handing out uh, uh, business and handing out rewards than any governmental determination. And the reason is because you can say no to it. In other words, if someone is doing a miserable job, uh, like our auto companies have been doing recently, uh, they get into trouble. And uh, the problem is the government can do a miserable job, like our Department of Agriculture has been doing, and uh, it's the only show in town. I, I distrust government precisely because it is monopolistic. Did I make clear what I just said about that uh, officer of a large corporation, that he was a Yale lawyer? You did. Yeah, all right. I just want to be sure I underline that. You did. Look, there are plenty of That's Yale lawyers. I mean, I, I think that, that, that Bill Clinton, I was actually somewhat friendly with Hillary, and by the way, the story is, and I tell this in my book, Right Turns, yeah. uh, which is my book before the Ten Big Lies. About We're going America. off in 20 seconds, Michael. I tried to persuade Hillary not to date this guy. <laughs> I didn't introduce them. I thought he was bad news. What were your reasons? I, he was just a, a blowhard and, and clearly a person of bad character. A bit of a bloviator. Uh, uh, even then, <laughs> the only guy in that law school full of ambitious, overachieving kids who actually talked actively about becoming president. We're out of time, Michael. I wish I had more to say, uh, a more appropriate good night. But thanks very much. You're for listening me. to the 